Welcome everyone to this special edition of the BRFCS podcast with a very special guest. My routine at lunchtimes typically involves grabbing a sandwich and a coffee between meetings and taking a few minutes perhaps to read my favourite websites. There are three particular highlights each week that I actively seek out. A new David Squires cartoon, a Marina Hyde column and of course anything published on Football 365 by my guest today, John Nicholson. He seems to hit the nail so squarely on the head so often that a change in career to joinery would surely be a success. He was nominated for this year's Football Supporters Federation Awards as Writer of the Year and therefore, in his own words, must have been doing something right. Well, he categorically has. John, a very warm welcome from all of us at BRFCS and thank you once again so much for joining us. Um, I presume you're in Bonnie, Scotland this evening. How do we find you? Oh, very good, thanks Ian. Yes, I'm on the um, Five Coast um, in a glorious little fishing village called Pittenween. Anyway, it's very calm tonight, which is quite unusual. It's usually thrashing a gale. At this time of uh, year especially, I guess. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful here. So yeah, all very good. Marvellous. A far cry from Teesside in the 70s then. And according to your website, your very own words, Teesside in the 70s when the clothes and the skies were brown... <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, though probably technically the skies were yellow, actually. When I, was I think say, the, the ICI factory, I presume. That's for all the ammonia. Yeah, you see your eyes would um, sting a little bit. I thought that was normal. I didn't realise that everywhere else in the world was called poison. There's but, another line that in your uh, your own biography on your website that intrigued me as well. You say that you've never had a paid job, nor no. have you ever owned a suit. Well, I haven't. That's true. Well, it's actually, it was slightly difficult because I, last week I was down at the um, Football Sports Federation uh, dinner and it said that uh, um, dress code was lounge suit and I didn't have a suit at all. And I thought, oh, I'm done if I'm going to buy one now after 57 years. So I turned up without one, but luckily they let me in. <laughs> no, I've, never had, I've always worked for myself. And um, I think that's just, I'm kind of an ordinary kind of individual who feels as if no one's good enough to be my boss, <laughs> really. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's just the way it's turned out, really. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way now. I think I, I think at my age, I'd find it very difficult to talk line on um, on somebody else's ideas so no I'm, I'm happy to work for myself me and my partner dawn we've always we've been together for 38 years and we've always worked together in the same yeah. business um and I, i'm convinced that's why we're still together after 38 years um just terrific just, excellent yeah. good stuff yeah. so when did the when did the writing bug first sort of grab you was it was it something at school were you encouraged or did you just turn your hand to it one day? No, uh, in the 70s you didn't get encouraged at school, that would be a, a fancy notion. No, no, we got beaten <laughs> and, game, and then sent into a factory. No, it was, I've always been an incredibly um, kind of, a, well I, I like to say imaginative. Uh, my mother just said I used to uh, lie a lot um, and I would make up stories, often ones that were incredibly complex and last for months and months, such as my epic tale about playing football for the school team and why I'd been presented with white boots and why she couldn't see them or ever come to watch me play, when in fact I wasn't playing football for the school team at all. I'd made the whole thing up and I carried this lie on for months and months and months. Oh my word. <laughs> So I've always been quite creative in the in that regard, and I, I I've wrote, I've written three or four novels in the in the eighties and nineties, all of which were terrible, uh, but I always had the ambition to write. Um, but the uh, my big break, such as it was, was in two thousand, and I've been writing into Steve Anglesey, who was the editor of Authors Expire at the time, just for the Lessers page, and he really liked my flights of fancy. 
they were somewhat kindred spirits, somewhat left field kind of minds. And uh, he gave me a column, and uh, and I used to do two or three pieces a week. And from that's like obviously eighteen years now since okay. the first one. So that was really how I got my break into getting paid to write, as it were. The Nick Gaiman novels, uh, mm. based on anybody that you know. What what what? Because that's a far distance from what what you what your columns in three six five, obviously. Yeah. What what was it about sort of that kind of theme that attracted you? Well, I've always wanted to write fiction, as I say, because I had this kind of um, febrile imagination all my life. But um, trying to channel that into structure and plots is actually quite a a wholly different art form, really. So it was something I dabbled, as I say. I'd done written three or four books before, all of which were any good. Nick came along at a time uh, in my life when I really wanted to sort a few things out psychologically about myself, and so it was kind of a form of cheap psychology as, as much as anything else. Cathartic I mean, experience all around, then. Yes. I mean, if you spare it, Nick was my nickname at school. Um, right, Guy of course. Maiden name. And uh, I have 6,000 albums uh, in my record collection, and so does Nick. Nick supports the borough and writes about football. A happy coincidence. A happy coincidence, indeed, yeah. So uh, I've just, there isn't really any difference between Nick and what he thinks and feels and what I do. And uh, that was partly um, because I wanted to give the character some real authenticity and, um, and some drive and energy to what he did. Yeah. I, I, and, I, and it was partly just a commercial decision because I thought I, can, I knew I would have to write quite a lot to make a living at it. I mean, write, write a lot of books because nobody sells many of anything, really, yeah, by and large. Yeah, yeah. So um, I thought, well, it'll be quicker writing about myself than it will be if I have to make up a character and remember what he's like. So I just thought, well, I'll just I'll just put me in instead. So although Nick is prone to hitting people in the face a little bit more than I am, um, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much his whole of his internal monologue is all me, really. So if Nick says it, then I believe it as well. And that does uh, means two things, really. One, it makes you incredibly exposed for all of your flaws and perversions. <laughs> but it also um, is, as, as you say, it's quite cathartic and it helps yeah. you work out why you got to this point and why you are as you are. So it is a kind of form of therapy, as I say. So not only the fiction writing, you wrote a, a non-fiction piece called We Ate All the Pies, and you've recently updated that, and there's a piece in there that seems particularly prescient, um, even as, re- as recently as the, the last weekend. One of the, the comments in the book was, football helps define who we are, who we think we are, how we behave, and how it affects our relationships in life, and how the game is used by people to vent their everyday frustrations and emotions. Raheem Sterling, discuss. What what are your thoughts on that scenario? Well, when I wrote that, and um, I wrote the the book We Ate All the Pies in 2010, and uh, it was long listed for the uh, William Hill Sports Book of the Year that year, so somebody must have thought it was quite good. And uh, I did so because um, I wanted to uh, look at the football culture in Britain, not so much that from a factual point of view, though there is some of that in it, but because I thought um, a sport never gets as popular and as globally popular as football does without it actually being important for reasons other than sporting. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like it's not just the kicky-kicky on the pitch. It's, I, I pretty much realised early on that it's everything else as well. I mean, you know, obviously it can't happen without the kicky-kicky, but um, it's everything that surrounds it that is, has made it so popular. Now, one of those things is it um, it is a, a, a being traditionally used as a kind of uh, pressure valve, I think, uh, for society. So you get 50,000 people 
um, shouting um, at a football match instead of shouting at the kids, you know, to put it in a very crude and basic sort of way. And um, in relation to the, the Raheem Sterling thing, though, and, I, and this is where I think it's changed since 2010, is, is I think um, with the influx of money into the game, um, and so that players are paid a like almost unbelievable amounts of money. I think this has changed the relationship between the fans and the players, and um, yeah. or at least it has for some people. Uh, and the also the price of admission to football has gone up massively over the last thirty-five years. Um, I quoted an example recently. Um, you could get a ticket for Manchester United v Liverpool in nineteen ninety-one for eleven pound in today's money. That is. Yes. And. Um, you know, that's just not possible now. Now you're going to be looking at 50 to 100. And with all of these things rolled together, I think, have, have made some fans um, feel justified in behaving any which way they want. Hence, we have people screaming abuse at people, which for all... Uh, I mean, I grew up going to football in the 70s, and it was, it, it was terrible. I mean, and the early 80s particularly terrible. And racism was everywhere, and violence was everywhere, and the threat of it was every even was just everyday life. I mean, that was, wasn't was even just at football, that was just in life in general, um, where I grew up. So, you know, I'm not romantic about those days in the slightest. However, there was, and this probably sounds weirdly contradictory, although it was incredibly violent at times and there was fans beating the living daylights out of each other, apart from the people that did that, the nutters that did that, which were a relatively small minority, there wasn't the same kind of bitter anger towards players there is yeah. now. Yeah. really wasn't. It didn't happen. You wouldn't have got somebody screaming what that guy was screaming. Not to say you wouldn't have had racism, but it wouldn't. It, 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 there is. It's very difficult talking about these things because you don't want to negate the, um, the import of, uh, of of the struggle that people like Raheem Sterling have, and uh, and that we should all be on his side. And uh, it's uh, there was people weren't as angry in the seventies, which even though they were violent, I know that just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't those two things don't necessarily sit together. But um, I really feel as though it was there was a different mood. I don't think people were angry at players because they they just earned perhaps double what a manual worker would earn. Yeah, they didn't yeah. earn a thousand times what they would earn. And uh, and this is, it all seems to have built up into uh, an all sorts of um, strange. Um, psychological problems. When uh, you have a sort of psychological situation where people feel kind of oppressed or hard done to, it's starting to it's starting to create all sorts of other problems, um, both on and off the pitch. And I think the Sterling thing is the best example of this at the moment, where you have the kind of symbiotic relationship between fans and, and media, uh, one feeding off the other, one trying to give the other what it thinks the other wants. And um, and it's very, very unhealthy. I don't really like it at all. Um, I, I feel as if I, I know there's a lot of people who feel equally alienated from the game as I did, well, game at the top particularly. So I think, um, yeah, all those things I wrote in 2010 are right, and I still think are right in relation to lower league football, non-league football. At the top level, though, I think it's something else is going on. I think the, the whole situation is in flux. And I think we're in danger, really, of um, of unleashing some really, really, really unpleasant mass fan behaviour, like the likes which we saw in the early '80s, mid '80s. And I just, I, I'm very, I'm very concerned about it. And it's one of the reasons I feel kind of more and more distanced from Premier League football. Yes, yeah, I think we we've noticed as as Rovers fans with our season in the League One, it was a great throwback going back to grounds and 
standing on terraces again and taking large followings and all that sort of good stuff. And it's brought a lot of people back to the club. So we've been at the Premier League now for a number of years, as uh, I'm sure you're aware. And it's it's almost like we kind of reinvented the promotion season last season, got everyone sort of switched back on again. I watch the Premier League now and it feels like it's a different sport in many respects from a technical ability perspective, but the money swilling around it, as you say, is, is absolutely extraordinary uh, and bears little correlation to what happened in, in the 70s and 80s. Another article that you wrote um, in September, in fact, touched on, you called it football's marriage to gambling. Can we even go back? And this is this is a subject we touched on in our podcast previously as well. Rovers are sponsored by uh, a betting company, as, as many, championships club, many championship clubs are. What's your take on where do we draw the line in football? Where do we stop and we sort of say, no, principles are more important than money? Well, it is something that exercises me a lot, this. And um, I mean, the whole of the champions, the the EFL is all sponsored by Skybet. I mean, it's just the warp and weft of football is now funded essentially by gambling. Uh, I think the effect of this is quite pernicious, really. However, it's happening because. Well, for two reasons. In in the case of well, actually, no, actually, I'll just go back a little bit on that and just unravel that a little bit because because there's so much money in football, because the broadcasting deals are so big, because so much money has to be generated to pay for everything, that all opportunities to sell advertising have to be taken by everybody. So you know, you've got um, every. I mean, you know, we started off in the early eighties with one sponsor on a football shirt, and that, by the way, for a younger. Uh, I say younger, I mean people under 45. (laughs) (laughs) That counts, trust me. It it was controversial, wasn't it, Ian, when it first came in? People thought that advertising was sort of despoiling the iconography of the shirt. And now it's completely normal to have dozens of little logos and all sorts of stuff and and sponsors all over everything. They're sponsoring the the warm-up kits, which I think is particularly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, but this has come about, and, and, and obviously, people. When I wrote that piece, people go, "Oh, well, you, you know, you write for Football Two Six Five, which um, is in carries betting adverts, yeah. carries betting adverts, and that, so effectively, I'm getting paid by betting adverts, and that is absolutely true. And of course, that only happens because people won't pay a subscription fee, and if people would pay a subscription fee, then we could make all of the advertising go away, and um, you know, you, could, you wouldn't even be that much. You know, you could pay us a, a, a pound a week. And then, um, you know, you would have an ad-free site. So it's kind of chicken and egg situation I think we've got ourselves into. Um, we can't derive money from, inverted commas, clean sources. So what are you going to do? Just not have anything, not do what you, you know, not have a place where you can write things like such as that I write, or are you going to sort of take the money and try to temper it with, articles about how dangerous this is and how we should open our eyes to the problems that it can cause and of course it has got a lot of traction really since i wrote the first i did two pieces on that i think the first was about eight or nine months ago and uh, it's it was clear to me that there was starting to become doubts in the betting industry they thought they were going to get hammered for this and that's why all those jeff stelling ads started to appear with him saying the you know stops. Yeah, that was just you know, a ridiculous... Trite nonsense, if ever there was. Basically, if the fun had stopped and you have a problem, you're not going to stop. And if you don't have a problem, you don't need to be told to stop. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's obviously crass. Um, but, as I say, um, you know, everything's so driven by money now. Um, like a Blackburn, I mean, I don't know what your top 
earning player will be, but it'll be a ludicrous amount of money. It will be, you know, it'll be. I bet you he'll be earning thirty-five to fifty thousand pound a week. Do you think? Would that be reasonable? It, it's hard to say because I, I guess we're not in a typical phase at the moment, having just come up from League One. Uh, the, the Danny Graham recently signed an extension. It's, it's not probably appropriate for me to speculate on what he's on, but I think he's probably up amongst the top earners. Uh, and Bradley Dack, I think, is due a new contract, so I would say at least 2025, probably yeah. pushing 30. Well, you know, to be honest, even, even if he was on 10 grand, which would be... I'd settle for that, John. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a ton of money for largely uneducated working-class lads to be earning. And it's, um, it, it's ridiculous that we seem to have got into this kind of death that's with cash, whereby we just have to keep generating more and more and more, to, essentially, largely to pay players. And yet these players would pay, if there wasn't a big money available, they would play anyway. In yeah. other words, Danny Graham would happily turn up and pay for five grand, if five grand was the max he could earn. And uh, I'd, uh, so I think that, that the, the difficulties with all to do with gambling all come back to this um, need to endlessly generate more and more cash from whichever way possible to play to pay players, and I think the fans rather see through this a lot of the time. They they it doesn't feel right. I mean, I'm quite unfashionable. I think in some ways, perhaps it's a generational thing, but I think there's only so much money you need. I can't believe like, <laughs> what's Danny Graham doing with like half a million quid a year? I remember Danny Graham at the Borough. It was terrible. <laughs> No, he's a late maturer, John. He's a late developer. Yes. Late developer. That's good. <laughs> By the time he gets to fifty-two, it'll be brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's been terrific for us. In fairness, he really has. We uh, we played Sheffield Wednesday uh, last week, and he scored a hat trick. And uh, there a lot of Sheffield Wednesday fans on social media say, so, "Our defence is so bad. We've given Danny Graham a hat trick." And I took one or two on and said, "Hang on a minute. You know, he has been absolutely terrific yeah. for us." No, I mean, and it's great, but you know, like. So all of these issues are not one isn't separable from the other, I think. And um, and you know how we um, tackle the financial issues in football is one of is just such a massive subject. Yeah. Well, it's quite clear that things have got kind of out of control when you've got. I mean, somebody said to me, and I don't know whether it's to a cart verify it, but he said he knew of somebody who is playing the third tier. I imagine a relatively big club like Sunderland, but I don't know. Yeah. It was a reserve. Uh, defend reserve team defender, and he was earning forty grand a week in the third tier. And uh, like obviously, I'll have to, that could just be hearsay. I don't know. But even if he was earning four grand, that still seems like tons of money to me. Well, what about the guy at Salford City? Um, yeah. the, the oh, from Scotland. I'm trying to think of his name. Yes, that's the boy. Um, I mean, Gary Neville was quick to jump and sort of say uh, rumours of his salary have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah. But the fact that he was prepared to sign for Salford City suggests that there is a, a reasonable financial return for so doing. And, and, and to move from one of Scotland's greatest clubs, Aberdeen, um, in order to play in the top flight in Scottish football in order to do so yes. as well, which is another whole issue which concerns a lot of people in Scottish football. I could imagine. And, um, yes, yeah, so I mean, there's lots of issues like this around money. It's very... As I say, it's very difficult to separate it all out and uh, and to really make a case for how or make an argument or uh, of how we can progress to a, a more financially healthy situation when you've got you know theocratic states buying football clubs. I mean, who yes. ever thought that would happen? Yes. I mean, you know, imagine if the Philippines bought Blackburn. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, of course, a number a number of fans will point the finger at us and sort of say, "Oh, yeah, you had Jack Walker, and you were probably one of the first to do it." And it, it you know, it's, it's a fair charge, I guess, because relatively speaking, in the second division in that time, we were able to to pay vast sums of money. It, we saw players play at Ewood Park. I would never ever dream that I would see, and all the rest of it. But it's moved on so many <laughs> exponentially since then. It's absolutely extraordinary. You say nation states now as part of their sort of like window dressing of their uh, their human rights records, buying sports teams. I'm not quite sure where it, where it will end. Who owns Middlesbrough these days? It's still Steve Gibson. Of course, yes. Yeah, so he, he is, a, as I suppose, the, the last of the, the Jack Walker, Lionel Pickering. Um, That's right. So Jack Haywood kind of school. So what, what's your first memories of Middlesbrough, and, and in how high esteem do you hold Tony Mowbray? Oh, right. Well, well I'll just take the second question first. Um... He's a great uh, legend of a footballer, Tony Mowbray. Um, the Borough. Um, I think, in a way, he embodied every kind of. Uh, he embodied our the sort of defender that we love the most of the Borough, which is one who looks like he's forged out of pig eye. <laughs> Gritty. And, uh, he was hard as nails. He used to wear terribly short shorts as well in those days, which is rather upsetting. Yeah. So I mean, there's some interesting things in the press actually in the um, Teesside Gazette. Uh, saying basically how welcome he always is on Teesside. I mean, he didn't work out for him as manager of the borough, tragically, really. Yeah. Um, given that he's been so successful elsewhere as well. But I don't. Th- I think even when he left, there was no animosity. It was just a general shrug of the shoulders that uh, didn't work out, but he's always welcome here. But my first memories of, of borough are um, uh, in 1970. Um, I was originally born in Hull, and uh, we moved from Hull to Teesside in '69. And uh, I went to the first, my first game in 1970 uh, to see them play Hull City. Uh, in fact, I won 1-0, and John Hickton scored, as he always did, inevitably. And um, so, yeah, so in my memories of, of, of Ayrson Park, where we used to play, which is incredible now that you think about it, it's over 22 years since we left Ayrson. And it seems like just the other day to me. And, and in fact, that you know, if you speak to anybody under the age of 30, they don't even remember Ayrson Park, which is terrifying. And now grounding the 1966 World Cup, of course, as well. That's right. We, that's right. We uh, hosted the North Korean games. In fact, uh, I think we still have some sort of diplomatic ties with North. Oppressive, oppressive states and uh, and Middlesbrough. They go hand in hand. <laughs> but yeah, and it, the interesting thing about it, actually, um, looking back over the long piece, is that when I first started going, there was only seven thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand people would go. Um, in when we were in the second division, the old second division, uh, you know, it wasn't. And like now, what do we get now, you know, we get sort of uh, thirty for big games at the Riverside, and you know, it's kind of the audience for football has grown massively on the side. Really, uh, a lot of times people think you know, we forget about the fact that we used to attract relatively low crowds. In fact, it's just like in a castle. I remember being in a castle in the late 80s, and they attracted like 15, 20,000 at the time. I always think that's one of the great um, untold tales. There's this myth that's grown up about Newcastle fans will go to watch the paint dry and grass grow. And then yeah. you look back through Rothman's annuals and think, well, hang on a minute. It's not always yeah. been like that, clearly. Absolutely not. No, in the glory days of Mirandinia. <laughs> all of that. Yeah, I remember there. Yeah, there used to be uh, graffiti uh, sprayed on the sides of um, St James's Park, wanting to get rid of the board and all of this. It was, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't big crowds at all. But no, so I mean, I mean, I've seen Middlesbrough become from. Uh, we've only ever played in the third tier for 
one, two seasons, one season? Two seasons, can't remember if it's one or six, uh, 86, 87. And um, the rest of the time we've been second, first tier. And uh, so we've never really been really, really terrible, but we've never been really, really good, with the exception of when we made the U- 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 Cup say, final. Yeah, yeah, and the League Cup win, of course. Uh, that's right, the League Cup win. I mean, I set my first book, Teesside Steel, against um, the background of that UEFA Cup campaign, particularly the um, the games against Basel and uh, Stowe Bucharest. And uh, I actually had... Um, Paul Addison, who's the BBC T's commentator, I actually transcribed his commentary to use for the Zoom on off. He's on the radio in the background, and it's actually Paul. I transcribed his words for the girls and put them in. I, I met Paul subsequently, and he's a, he's a really nice lad, really, really tremendous fella. He didn't take over royalties. No, no, he was just like to even be mentioned in the book, I think, really, yeah. And um, uh, so. Um, yeah, so that was really very much a high point. I don't, I don't ever expect to see those days again, not least because, I mean, a couple of years after that, when we got relegated, it was part, part of the reason was we were about 90 million quid in the hole uh, because we'd been trying to feed Mark Maduka. You uh, <laughs> basically got to get a wheelbarrow full of spam and DNA spit <laughs> chuck it into him. <laughs> A healthy appetite, as they say, uh, euphemistically. It was dukes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so it's you know we've seen some ups and downs, just like yourselves, really, at Rovers. Um, but I think it's a kind of um, what is it? It's kind of the soul of where football is. I think places like Middlesbrough, you know, unfashionable, out of the way, not glamorous, and that's why we like about it. We don't really want to be anything other than that. Just a bit like Rovers as well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know? These are the kind of lifeblood clubs of football. Yeah, the North East, the North West, the Midlands, and you know, there are certain clubs in London, I think, that, that would fulfil that uh, that profile as well. John, I'm conscious of time, but I really, really have got to ask you at least one question on music before we, uh, before we finish our conversation. And I'll distill it down to this. If you were going on Desert Island, what would be... I'll, I'll give you an album rather than a single. What would be the album that you, um, you saved from the waves? Oh, my goodness. Well, this is one of the things that I think all of us who are record collectors uh, think about from time to time. And, of course, it changes a lot. But I think I often think if I had to only ever have one record for the rest of my life, I would have Asia by Stevie Dan. Just because I've listened to that for 40 years, I'm still never tired of it, and I still love every single note that's on that record. And um, while I would love to pick lots of other stuff, I think... um, I think Asia by Studio Dan is the one I would uh, I would I would pick out of the raging torrents of the six thousand. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but aren't you? You know, then there's, there is a lot of other ones too. So it's very. It's, I mean, I'm a massive Todd Rundgren fan. Yeah, and uh, and I would take um, I would take some mid seventies uh, Todd Rundgren with me, possibly the Utopia first Utopia album, uh, which has uh, the whole of the second side of that is a treatise on cosmic fire which is 38 minutes long. So that would take up some time on my desert island. <laughs> Sounds exactly like my kind of thing, that I have to say. <laughs> I'm still an unreconstructed <laughs> progressive rock fan, so all, all of that sounds like something I should look up immediately. In that regard, then, yeah. We'll start talking about obscure ones. We'll start talking about Greenslade and Frupp. And, <laughs> well, I just uh, wondered, when you said Asia, I thought, Asia, really? Nah, Crikey, that's not what I expected. By Steely yeah. Dan. Ah, oh, right, okay, now it makes sense. I didn't have you marked down as a sort of an electronic prog rock of the eighties. Well, actually, I do quite like Asia. I must say, so yeah. I have so, seen them. I have seen them live in a, in a later incarnation. But Steve Howe, of course, looks ever more like Skeletor with every passing tour. Oh, the I know. 
I always thought Steve Howe was a really weird choice for Asia. The rest of it I can get with, I understand, but his guitar solos, and I was just me, things on things like Heat of the Moment, they actually yeah. sound out of time. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he's been playing, he's playing along to a different record, he's playing along to a different track. Yeah, I think it's someone like Trevor Rabin, you know, in that incarnation of yes, he sort of think that that would he would have fit much much better in, into that sort of lineup. We could have a whole podcast on this. I, 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 I might I might contact you again in a few weeks because this is a, possibly a more interesting conversation than the football <laughs> one in many respects. Different, let's put it that way. Um, what's the future then for John Nicholson? What unfil- unfulfilled ambitions remain? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I. In the immediate future, I'd like to write, and I probably will write if I can get the money sorted out for it, um, a book called something along the lines of Can We Have Our Football Back? Um, subtitled um, Who Stole Football and How, yes. we, can, how we Can Get It Back. Yes. Um, uh, and I'd like to write really about all of these issues that we've just touched on, only in a more, <laughs> in a more coherent way that I can talk about them. And... Um, uh, because I, I just think there's so many things that are going unsaid, and so many, there's a whole generation of people, probably two generations really almost, that have grown up with football being a very different game to the one that millions of people fell in love with. And I would really like to document that in uh, both culturally and philosophically, and even morally, really, because I think that there is a lot of a, there's a moral dimension to a lot of people's objection to Absolutely. the. Uh, the upper echelons of football these days. And I don't think that's wrong. I really don't think it's wrong. When you've got people who are really struggling to get by, you've got other people who are getting hosed three hundred thousand pounds into them every week. That's just wrong. I just I don't I don't have that in my value system and I'm happy to say that, you know. Um but unfortunately that's not everybody's view. A lot of people think, well well, you know, we all take them off. how do you spend three hundred thousand pounds a week? What would you do? I mean, it's... you know it's a problem if I had, I'd probably end up buying a football club to be perfectly honest, and then I'd kiss goodbye to the money quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That would be a, that would be a bitter irony, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. How do you become a millionaire in football? Start off by being a billionaire, as the old joke has it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that's my um, that's my next ambition really is to write that that particular book in terms of football. Uh, but my overriding. Um, um, ambition for the next two or three years is to get the Nick Geimer books made into a TV movie series, oh, okay. uh, a two-hour ITV kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I've been trying to do for ages and have failed miserably at. So if anybody listening knows somebody who wants to get a production company to produce them for me, I will be very happy to hear from them um, because I think that firstly. Um, they they will look fantastic. Teesside is such a iconic place, full of amazing views, and yeah. and and it's just a real Teesside's like a character in itself. And I've tried to write it like that in the books, and the books touch on so many really important issues um, that are um, in our lives these days. I mean, Nick himself, he, he suffers from depression and um, uh, self harm and all sorts of other things. There's lots and lots of issues in the books, but also lots of humour. And you won't be surprised to learn lots of references to obscure rock albums of the 1970s. Sounds perfect. It sounds like yeah. So, um, and I just think they would make great a great TV series. So, if I could wish for any one thing to happen, it would be for that to happen. Well, if BRFCS has the power to make it happen, John, that would be absolutely terrific. Where where can people buy these books of which you speak? Do you well, have a um, website at which people could? Uh, um peruse them? Yeah, you can get them all as paperbacks 
directly from my website. Uh, I always guide people there first because that's how I make the most money from them. Um, so that's uh, seannicholsonwriter.co.uk. You can buy them all as Kindles as well, and you can go to all the usual bookshops and buy them too. Uh, if they're out of stock, you can order them in. Um, and, uh, yeah, so just all from the usual sorts of places, really. Um, I think one of the interesting things that's developed, because I've had publishers in the past um, to publish my non-fiction stuff, but I actually set up a publishing company to publish my own fiction uh, because I figured out quite quickly it was extremely hard to make a living um, relying on a 50p royalty per book from a book, <laughs> which is what I was doing. So um, when you produce them yourself, instead of 50p, you get five quid. Right. A book sale, and that actually makes it doable. So um, and that's another whole other thing that one day, if you ever want to talk to me about, I'm happy to um, be uh, <laughs> be very boring about for a very long length of time. But I think it's been tremendously liberating for me. I mean, one, the only thing I would say just now about it is that publishing your own stuff, uh, there are lots of pitfalls to it. But for me, it was a tremendous release of creativity not to go through somebody else's filter, but yes. to actually just know that I could bring something to the market myself without having to rely on anybody else to do it. And um, I hope I've been at least in some degree successful. I've certainly sold thousands of books, so some people must like reading them. So, um, yeah, so it's been a tremendously positive thing, and I would encourage other people to explore that as well. Well, that's one thing about the internet, I guess, and, and the, the blogging culture that's grown up. I mean, I, I do dabble from time to time, and in a very small way, it, it is really as you say it's it's a release it's it's a, a mechanism for your creativity and it just needs one person to say do you know i really enjoy reading that and it puts a spring in my step well all i can say john is when i read your stuff it very definitely puts a spring in my step and i know that many of the people that listen to this podcast equally you're one of the uh, one of the key websites that we go to to look at your columns it's been a pleasure chatting an absolute pleasure uh there are so many 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 things that we could talk about and maybe again one day we will do just that but in the meantime thank Thanks so much for giving up your time. It's tremendously, uh, tremendously generous of you so to do, and we've really enjoyed having you on. Thanks, John. Oh, thanks, Ian. It's always a pleasure. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the BRFCS podcast, the only podcast approved to cover the 2018-2019 season by the New York City Rovers. Don't forget to check out www.brfcs.com.